He's a very exciting celebrity. He's fun to be around when he's being him. If he's doing an interview with a late night host, it's going to be great. He's great, right? Yep. He's not that great an actor. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Lainey. I am the founder and editor of LaineyGossip.com. I'm a talk show host in Canada and also an entertainment news reporter. And I don't know, by the time you listen to me, I could be another Susan Lucci of the Canadian Screen Awards or I could have a trophy. I'll let you know. Yeah. And we will look forward to virtually finding out. I want to know what you're wearing for the ceremony. Hi, I'm Duanna Taha. I am a television screenwriter and producer, and I am not ashamed to say that until now, everything I learned about sports, I learned from Coach Eric Taylor. (laughs) Well, we are not talking about football this week. We are talking about basketball, but mostly we're talking about Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan's leadership, and should we be interrogating not just that kind of leadership style, but hero worshiping and sports documentaries in general. What is it like when you realize the story you're watching isn't going to turn out to be the story they set out to tell? We will dig into it. Plus, we are discussing the surprising uproar that happened when John Krasinski announced he had sold the format for some good news. This is Show Your Work. We always say we're busy. We talk a lot, but also things happen without us having the chance to speak, right? We took a week off last week, so that was a bit of a blip in time. Yet it is unfathomable to me that we have not discussed Hamilton Day. Hamilton as in the film on Disney Plus coming in July, right? The film of the original performance dropping July 3rd. It's a Friday on Disney Plus. Uh, It's all the original performers. Uh, Yeah, it's happening. It's basically a national holiday as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Do you, first question. Well, it is a national holiday for America. Well, that's true too. And in fact, now I go, okay, so they probably planned that that way. Uh, That was the reason for that drop date. Um, I also thought it was a bit of a like band-aid for the fact that I was so excited for In the Heights to drop this summer and it's been pushed back until next year for a theoretical theatrical release. But look, mm-hmm. we get Hamilton. We get it July 3rd. There are whispers, secret whispers that maybe there will be like a new song released at the end, like a new track sung either choir style or by Lynn himself or so forth. What have you decided to do for the day? And don't say, oh, I'll just I'll just ask you about it because that's not acceptable. 
Well, I have been thinking about what to do. Well, first, my first thought was, um, will this be the right setting for it to watch it at home? And while I know that going to a movie theater to watch the film mimics sort of a theater setting, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. Broadway. I also think that Hamilton works on TV. There's an intimacy to watching TV in your own space um, and really connecting to the songs. Also, I think that for the last few months, especially since so many of us have been at home, if we're lucky enough to be at home and not on the front lines, that much of our watching um, includes, I know Kathleen objects to this, but includes watching with subtitles. Yeah. And I think it would be really interesting for people who are meeting Hamilton for the first time this way to have the subtitles. Oh, interesting. I don't know. May, I don't know what I think about that. Um, although maybe I'm just being a a grumpy purist. But, you know, logic says that's what original cast recordings are for, right? You play yes. the uh, the album over and over so that you learn what it is you're about to see so that when you see it, you're not scrabbling for all those words in between, you know them, you've studied the, the libretto, yep. get yourself the Hamilton, you know, you can follow along there. That said, mm-hmm. I mean, I actually object not on a, uh, a purist level or on a, I don't like subtitles level. Cause fundamentally I love them. I actually just don't know if, uh, obviously everybody thinks about that big long rap sequence in guns and ships. I just don't yeah. know if captioning is going to be able to keep up. Like, you know, what's the minimum amount of time that words need to be on the screen for them to be actually readable? And I don't know if captioning can put the words up as fast as they will come out of uh, David Diggs and Lin-Manuel Miranda in, in that sequence. Well, I say this because I'm talking about this through the lens of Yasik who has never seen Hamilton, who has listened to us talk about Hamilton over and over and over again. And on July 3rd weekend, that is something I'm probably going to do with him. I'm going to say, finally, you don't have to go out to see this. Now you know what we're going to be talking about. He doesn't listen to original cast recordings. That is not going to be the homework that he's going to come in to this with. But he's, uh, I can say that he has a little bit of interest and doesn't want to be uh, coming in with notes and pre-reading and prerequisites. And so I think for people like that, and that's really why you do something like this. Like that's why you bring something to a theatrical experience. And now to the at-home experience, you're trying to appeal to a broader swath audience. Uh, And if you're going to do that, you can't apply the purest perspective and you have to meet them where they are. But then I think you take it as a movie experience as they, as it was meant to be. One thing that we have a bad habit of doing in our house uh, is pausing to talk about something while we're watching something, you know, mm-hmm. oh, this is just like this and blah, blah, blah. And that's yeah. not actually what's intended either. And to your point about, you know, getting a whole new swath of people into Hamilton, at, like interested in Hamilton. Then I say, then we play it just like the people who fell in love with it at the public theater before it was 
on Broadway is like, just let it wash over you, him, Yasik. It, you know, it's either going to win you over because of what it is and because of the lines that you do clock the first time or it isn't. Then you can go back and forensic later. You can get the every glorious wordplay and whatnot, but you're either going to be into it or you're not from first viewing. So I would still go purist with that. Just turn it on, turn off the lights and live your life. Yeah, I think that I just I don't think that that would work for in particular this example of person and viewer I'm talking about, because, again, to you know, you brought up a great example in Guns and Ships that would go right over his head. Right. But you know, either it his, would be so fast and he wouldn't go back and watch it. But, then, sorry. but, that's, a, but that's not <laughs> the point. The point is either he's going to like that these dudes are uh, rapping about you got to get your right hand man back, which we he will get from watching it for the first time or he won't, you know. It's like also if somebody is not a devoted captions reader to begin with, I don't know if they're going to enjoy that experience. It's not going to draw you in more. It could give you more distance. That said, you know, operas run with the translation up above the stage all the time. Right. That's just how Mm -hmm. opera is. Uh, I'm not an opera consumer, but I know that's a thing. So uh, maybe I mean. I'm sad for you that you have to consider these kinds of uh, elements, but. uh... Oh no, I'm excited. I'm excited. I, I'm excited to see it at home. I would have liked to go see it at the movie theater, but I'm actually really excited to see it at home in this specific setting. Um, I would like to watch it at home straight through. I don't know. That is the only thing is I, I do think it's, it's a crime to pause Hamilton. Well, we were talking about this, about whether if they put an intermission into it, are they going to put 20 minutes of black in the middle or how is that going to work? Or bars and tone. Yeah. Like it's also not meant to be consumed act one, act two straight through, right? You need that break. Mm -hmm. Most of which in the theater is spent lining up to pee. But uh, yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they play that. And, you know, I'm not trying to be too specific about it, but if I was going to, you know, order something thematic to eat, uh, I'm not sure if it would be all that exciting. Like 1776 had a lot to say, but I'm not sure that the cuisine was uh, <laughs> was the thing. So I'm also thinking intensely about what I should prepare, what I should lay in at that time. July 3rd. Are you going to watch it on the first day? Obviously. I think that I'm going to properly, even though we're not American, I'm not American. I think I'm going to do it on July 4th. Okay. All right. Like an ode to our brothers and sisters down south. Sure thing. I I buy that. And, you know. What day of the week. Yeah. And it happens to be a Saturday. Listeners should know that you're adding it to your calendar as we speak. (laughs) Let us know, though, what your Hamilton plans are. If you have any Hamilton plans and what your thoughts are on watching it from home, subtitles or not, breaks or not, how about intermission, well, um, and your snacks. Yeah, and specifically, are you going to bring in some virgins, as you clearly are? Um, you know, is that, how are you planning to deploy that? Because, yeah, there are a lot of people who would have loved to see Hamilton, never got the opportunity, so... For a lot of people, this is this is a real entree, and I'm interested to know how people are going to play it out. I can't wait to see social media that weekend. Oh, 
it, if it trends, what the hashtags are going to be. If, if it trends, how viewing, dare you? View, virtual viewing party, all of that. Amazing. <laughs> all right. We are a week into the end of um, what I think has been the surprise watch of lockdown, which is the um, ESPN docuseries, The Last Dance, about the Chicago Bulls of, they say 97, 98, but really it was the Chicago Bulls of the Michael Jordan era, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Michael Jordan became synonymous with the 90s, pretty much, right? The the documentary also deals with various aspects of the culture, which uh, all of which had Michael Jordan in and around it at some point or another, from Air Jordans to Space Jam as sort of the bookends <laughs> of what that looked like. So much work in this docuseries, so much like show your work good material from a conversation about leadership, mentorship, media and how it's changed. I mean, every episode had a work takeaway, a work low light, a work highlight. We've already covered some of the storytelling aspects um, a few weeks ago when we first started watching it in terms of how Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and Dennis Rodman, and Phil Jackson all kind of related to, to each other in a workplace setting, like the key people and the roles that they played on a team, any kind of team, be it a basketball team or a workplace team. The court just happened to be their workplace. But there are other, so many other work takeaways. So where do you want to start with this? Well, actually, I want to start way back at you saying that it was the surprise watch of the pandemic. Because mm -hmm. I think that one of the things that made this uh, an event is something we'd all but forgotten about. And that was weekly episode drops. Um, yeah. They dropped two a week instead of one a week. But that right. is, uh, you know, that's a network model. It's a bit of a bygone era. And people who have made things for streaming, for streaming services in the past few years have said, that as great as it is that people really love them and consume them, that it feels sometimes a bit weird to know that your year or 18 months of work is being gobbled down by somebody in, you know, one 11 hour session with pee breaks. Like that's, yeah. it's sort of not quite the thing. So I think it is first and foremost, we should keep in the back of our minds that not only is this throwback, story-wise, but it's a throwback to the way that we used to watch. And as a result, the fact that a conversation does go over many weeks, right? That it was sort of mm -hmm. the return of recaps in that kind of bated breath way, waiting to see what next week would be. And it, it also fits the subject matter of, of a sports match. You know, you don't play... <laughs> You don't play 10 games back to back to back to back to back. I mean, you do play typically an NBA schedule is sometimes they play every night, but it's every other night. But also it's in the NBA back in the day, it was like those big weekend games too, right? The Sunday afternoon games. So you tune in on a certain, a certain night to watch almost in the same way that football Sunday in America seems to be devoted to the NFL between, let's say, September and February. Um, 
And so it does fit the subject. I mean, it also has to fit the, it has to fit the characters and, and the place that we're talking about. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I think it's, I like your analogy that it's like the way sports games were played, like not just that, uh, you play them in sequence or, or on big highlight days, but that each one is in the books. Like you've sort of finished a chapter before you start the next one. Um, in sort of the collective consciousness. So that's sort of my biggest overall takeaway. More specifically, though, I think you and I might come to different blows. So tell me, uh, as you said, the last time that we spoke about this, we'd seen just four episodes. That's what was released. And now having seen the whole series, where do you want to dig in? Well, I think that a good place to start might be leadership. And the questions that I think The Last Dance asks about uh, a style of leadership and when that works, what doesn't work about that style of leadership, and whether or not a documentary like this and a figure, an iconic figure like this, reinforces the idea that there is one best way to be a leader. Right. And so to paraphrase, you're talking about the fact that Michael Jordan, as a leader who unquestionably motivated his team and drove his team, was also referred to as a bully or a mean guy, or certainly you get the impression that if he wasn't happy, nobody was happy, right? Nobody was allowed to be happy. You, If, if he had a problem with the way something went in a game, everybody necessarily had to have a problem. Is That's the leadership style that you're referring to? Yeah, I think that they're, for sure. I think that, yes, the bullying and the meanness and the tough love way of leading is definitely something worth unpacking. Because I think that not just in sport, but in all areas of life over the last, especially, what, 20 years or so, we have been examining whether or not long-term that is an effective style of leadership. What makes Michael Jordan very complicated and obviously endlessly fascinating is that being a bully wasn't his only way of leading. Typically, when you talk about bully leaders and leaders who lead with tough love and just yell all the time and lean into people and are mean, you don't, there's a caricature that forms, right? That yeah, you, you know, you imply that they can't contain their monsters. Multitudes. Yeah. Right. And what is so compelling about Michael Jordan is that while he was horribly mean to certain people and, you know, only reinforced that very toxic kind of leadership, he also was right there with his teammates all the way. So not only was he quite like a team first person, and we saw that with the triangle offense of him Mm -hmm. being convinced to give up the ball in order to win more games. And he was like, okay, I can get down with that, which doesn't fit the stereotype, number one. But number two, for someone who is as gifted and as iconic as he, like he's a giant in that locker room, right? Everybody concedes that there's Michael and then there's the rest of us. Of course. You you can see that he actually participates in all team exercises. 
He shows up for the drills. He shows up for the warmups. And Phil Jackson had all of those things that he introduced as a coach, like those meditative exercises, you know, I'll joke and say like chanting or, you know, sitting around a fire, burning a letter and watching the shapes that the smoke (laughs) makes and, and all that. And Michael Jordan did not abstain from any of that. And I think the stereotype of that kind of leader, or at least the specials in the locker room, you know, the, the celebrity players on a team, they don't often think about a set. Think about a set with movie stars and how the crew and a lot of people end up bonding, but the num- like number one, two, and three in a call sheet often aren't there at the parties, at the weekly drinks gathering. A Friday after work drinks, are you going to show up? The call sheet one, two, and three people typically don't show up. Michael was there. Yeah, he was there for sure. And 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 I think that's a form of leadership. Yeah, I agree with you, but I think that's where I ultimately not had a problem with this documentary, but where uh it just it, look, we watch this and we learn about Michael Jordan, the athletic Phenom. I called him a genius last time we talked about this, and I feel it still, right? Like in terms of what he could see that needed to be done, the way he was able to play, to get himself into condition, all of those things, including which buttons to push to enforce the team dynamic. Um, Like, I guess what I'm trying to say to you is, yeah, he was there because it was good for morale, because he could sense that the team needed that. So he was about the team in that sense. But I don't ever get the impression that he was there because he likes being around these people. And ultimately, I think that what we were shown is the difference between the fantasy of a team and the truth of it, particularly if there is, as you say, a special involved. The fantasy Mm -hmm. of a team is these buds are my best friends. These are my favorite people. Oh, no, I don't think that was a takeaway at all. No, but that's the that's the fantasy of sports. Right. But yeah, they were the winningest team, certainly. But Michael Jordan was there because it was required in order to produce the results that he needed to get the wins that he needed. Right. If they had said, Michael Jordan, these are all robots and you need to tend to the robots in such and such a way in order that they play, he would have done so. But there's, I don't get any real team camaraderie there. I don't get a feeling of, wow, this was a special group of people together as people. Oh, no, I don't think, I think that's what's really interesting, though, is that like, at no point do you take away from this that he is particularly tight with any of these people now. What they share is the trophies and the wins. Um, and certainly there was a chemistry on the court where they can they knew each other well enough through practices and the work that is done in practice and maybe being with each other on the bus and the plane where they could read each other for the plays. And But camaraderie as we like to fantasize about people being BFFs and having each other over the, for the barbecue. Fuck no. But I also think that's really interesting that a team 
can work like that. Yeah, but I think that's what it's about, right? All of these people on this team, to some extent or other, are tacticians. And the most interesting part to me is when uh, other players of varying levels of, of skill and fame say, well, actually, because of Michael, my game was heightened. Steve Kerr is the one that comes to mind, but uh, Kukoc plays in that a bit. Uh, Horace, what's his head, who wound up... Uh, <laughs> the snitch or the alleged snitch? Uh, the alleged snitch and uh, who charmed me by wearing his glasses in every game. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, goggles. Yes. His goggles. Well, they are. Yeah, they're goggles because of glasses, though. Like, obviously, they're prescription or he wouldn't wear them. Yes. Um, <laughs> it, like, that part of Michael Jordan made me into the player I became. That stuff is interesting. But I think... Ultimately, I guess the question is this, and I don't know if this is where you meant to go, but ultimately at the end of 10 episodes, I knew a lot about how this team was able to do this sort of unfathomable feat of the six NBA championships. But I'm not sure if I knew who the team was who did it. And I'm not sure whether the filmmakers wanted me to feel that way. It felt a little bit soulless to me at the end. And I think that was semi-intentional. I don't know if it was intentional. I think that's really interesting. I have heard rumors that when they decided when they would air it, because they moved up the air date, right? It, was, it wasn't even supposed to air yet. Like we are still about three weeks away from it typically, or it, it, um, airing according to plan, which is around the time of the NBA finals, which is mid-June. Um, so I had heard that they weren't finished cutting it. Yeah. Yeah. It also like the heard rumor. That. Yeah. Yeah. So the rumor is, is that I think they had cut maybe one and two, maybe three, but that the back half for sure, even as like, even as recently as a month ago was a fucking scramble. Yeah. They were still doing interviews even. Uh, yeah. There you go. Um, so I'm not sure that they had, I don't know that they had, a, I, I'm sure they had an intended narrative. I'm not entirely sure if that narrative held up. Like, I don't even know if the doc knows what its own thesis is. Yeah, that's really interesting. What do you think the thesis turned out to be? Like, like having seen it, yeah. What's your I think summary? That, like, uh, what's the parable? My thesis personally, yes. as, as a viewer through my own lens, is that um, athletes, the greatest professional athlete that the, or the greatest athlete that the NBA has ever known is uh, a gossipy petty bitch, <laughs> as are all the people in the sport. Yeah. And I would That's amend. That's my thesis. I might amend petty. This was a soap opera. I might even amend petty to pouty, right? There's uh -huh. a there's a part where he talks about uh, that young player. Who was it? Brian, uh, what's his head? Who mouthed off uh, at one point to Jordan. And he's- Allegedly. Uh, Allegedly. I think he confessed to it. I think he was like, uh, I said something like, well, anyway. Um, and, he, and Jordan says, well, and from then on, he was on my list. He had an Arya Stark list. He had an axe He had a burn book. Yes. 
<laughs> yeah. And, you know, every game on the court was him working out all his his spite factors and his jealousies and everybody who had ever said to him, no, I don't think you can do it. Or Michael Jordan's out of shape or uh, a baseball body is not a basketball body. Um, he was just kind of exacting his revenges one by one. But it, it, it veers into a weird place. You know, it's, it's not the sports hero story that we are used to being told to your point. Yes. He's a, he's, petty and vindictive and so forth. But it also stops short of saying single-minded ambition and grudges and focusing on winning to the exclusion of all else may give you exactly what you wished for. Right? Which is? Well, he has all the championships. He has every uh, accolade that is possible to have. I'm not sure if he has anything else. Right. Like I am not as much of a uh, Michael Jordan follower as a lot of people who noticed before I did that his wife is nowhere to be seen, that his kids barely come up, that, you know, he talks a lot about his father and his mother and what the relationship was like in turn, like in connection to basketball. But you never hear him say, I just missed my kids, man. I just really wanted to spend time with my wife. I'm not sure he has a lot else. And I felt really sorry for him in a weird way. Yeah. I mean, Juanita only shows up, I think, what, in episode seven? And they couldn't cut her out of it because she was sitting right beside him at the press conference where he quit. Right. And then, obviously, like, Juanita is not a huge part of his life now in terms of he has you know, he's remarried. He has children with um, his second wife. But she, what's interesting is that she works for the Jordan company. The kids also do as well, or at least um, I think it's Jasmine and Marcus do, Mm -hmm. maybe Jasmine and Jeffrey. Anyway, but two, two of the three kids that he and Juanita had together are working uh, for the company. And Juanita, I believe, is an executive for the company. And so you would think, yeah, that she may have something to say or at least something like I would love her recollections. Well, or tell me. Yeah. Or tell me about how you came to be an executive at the company, what the company came to be for. Um, You know, the singular focus on the championships and the narrative is really strong. I think I said to you that one of the things I appreciated early on is that they managed to make this massive team into the underdogs by saying they were going to lose their beloved coach. I was, I thought that was masterful, but the focus wore thin over 10 episodes. I think that, that utter focus became a problem instead of a strength. I agree with you there. And in that sense, it is an incomplete story. Because, of course, there's no way of doing that if you have a family without some work being done on the other side to manage the family. Like, you can't put a documentary like this out there about anyone's work and and have it be comprehensive by cutting out half of his life. 
Yeah. Absolutely. And look, if the truth is, hey, I'm Michael Jordan and I didn't want a family, um, you know, that's a conversation that you can have. But it's it's a weird thing to be like, oh, yeah, these were just other people over there because they're not a concern. It's not, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not a factor. It's never we hear one moment where the kids are like, oh, we stayed home one time because we had school. Uh, it was all of 20 seconds. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. there's no, there's nothing in him saying, well, once I had a family, my focus became either stronger or weaker or split or whatever. And so it just feels incidental in an upsetting way. Like if Michael Jordan is, uh, look, I'm going to say something extremely controversial. In a Mm -hmm. different context, somebody with the singular focus of Michael Jordan uh, would be, uh, might be referred to as, you know, they might be on the spectrum a bit. Somebody who only eats, sleeps, and breathes one topic and doesn't choose to socialize and only wants to focus on that one topic, right? Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. is fine. There is nothing, we're only beginning to understand that people can be all types, that a family is not the PL to end all, that to be single or to be in love with your job is not uh, problematic in and of itself. If, you know, if that's a choice that you make, but it, it, as it was to have those elements kind of swept under the rug felt like it was hiding a worse story. And therefore this story that we're hearing, you're right, is incomplete at best because Mm -hmm. Many people have come out and criticized it and said, you know, it's essentially an advertorial, right? It's essentially a commercial for Michael Jordan. Yeah. But, well, go on. And we all know this, right? Like, this doesn't get made without his say-so, without his approval. That footage was locked in the archive. They made an agreement with him saying that they could only release it and use it when he gave his blessing. Um, I think it's his best friend or manager or, like, two very, very close associates of associates of his who executive produced it. So it, 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 this is all in service of his legacy. Yes, it is absolutely Michael Jordan sanctioned. Right. But that means uh, that he's okay with not representing any other part of his life as part of his mm-hmm. legacy. Um, and I think that paints a sketch of a guy that, is not the one they thought they were sketching. Mm. Say again? I think that by uh, excluding any other parts of his life or by tacitly implying that, you know, all that other stuff, the family and the other parts of life, or even friends or, yeah, true buddies or whatever, by not including any of that stuff, maybe because Michael wanted to keep it private or because there wasn't anything there to say. I think it actually tarnishes his like golden child status instead of Mm. uh, celebrating him. It makes it seem a little bit hollow. It, It certainly reinforces what I think a lot of people already thought of Michael Jordan, which is that Michael is going to have, Michael is going to, it's Michael's say or no way. Right. Yes, for sure. And that was never, for me, it's 
the bigger question is when you are a storyteller and you're a documentarian, can you effectively tell a story that is supposed to be a search for some kind of truth, something honest, uh-huh. when there these factors are at play? Number one, you clearly worship your subject. Number two, your subject has to approve of the story. Yes. And number three, when the subject itself is, you know, in the culture, um, a legend. Well, that's the thing, right? If you're going to sell us, that's, I think, where it comes to a weird place. You can make a documentary about truth uh, and and try and, you know, tell the truth and look at it evenly, not necessarily dig up the skeletons, but look at it as straight on as you can and and treat things as straightforwardly as you can. Or you can make the burnished gold heroes documentary, the one that makes you feel good at the end. The, the classic example is is the Michelle Obama doc that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Right. Like Michelle Obama is not perfect. Somewhere yeah. on her book tour, I'm sure she snapped at somebody or uh, misspoke or something. But that's not the story they were telling, right? They were doing the the Golden Halo documentary edit. Fine. Yeah. But this one, especially because, as you say, of that third element of how Michael Jordan is knitted into the culture of the 90s, of sports culture, of making an entire generation of sports fans who are now in their forties and fifties, it just, it straddles both sides. And so it comes up with neither. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel strange about it. I think I feel strange about it, but I also, um, I think that, you know, there are so many things that I like that were maybe unintentional about, what the filmmakers were trying to do. Um, And one of those is the gossip, right? You know, it's always been my soapbox because it has been as, I guess it's, you know, if you're preaching to the converted, then yes, everybody, even academics now concede that gossip is how we communicate. Everybody gossips. It's not like, it should not be gendered. That said, you also know, Duane, I think you can appreciate there are still many, many people who believe that it's women, it's real housewives of this and that city. It's never your athletes. That's just, that's real shit in that locker room. That's like, you know, that is real honest work and whatever. Or and I think that- it's trash talk and that's a an essential part of the process in the game, right? Of course, it's, yes. It's, uh, it, you know, and that pre-game banter and building up those rivalries. You're right. It's all there. It's the same stuff in a different package. But yeah, it's yeah. seen as part of the side spectacle, if you will. And more respectable. Yeah, yeah, in general. Or more essential anyway, let's say that. Sure. And so that for me is uh, like that whole 10 episodes, that docuseries was was basically, he said, he said. Love that, right? (laughs) Yeah. But I also think, too, that there is something to sports journalism where 
because sport in and of itself is so black and white in the sense of the score can't be interpreted subjective. That's right. Right. That there is a misapprehension that because you're covering something where the score is so finite and not up for debate, as you said, that the stories behind it also are nothing but the truth. And that uh, when sports documentaries and, and the way that we talk about sports and shows and conversations about sports are like, um, they, they, I don't know if I'm articulating this properly. So I think I'm, bear with me while I get that or try to get there uh, is, is like, there's something truer about it than other forms of entertainment. Yeah. Well, I think it comes back to that myth, that hero story that we heard over and over in this doc, but that is certainly not the only place we've heard it, right? You and I love Friday Night Lights. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose, right? Yeah. There is an idea that the pursuit of athletic excellence is so pure, Mm -hmm. is so like heart of gold, wonderful, that everything done in service of it is, yes, A, honest, B, also pure of heart, or C, only what can be expected, you know, that even that thing where uh, over and over again, we saw sports reporters saying at various points, is this MJ's last uh, last run? Mm-hmm. Can he come back? Could this be the end of Michael Jordan? Even in those situations where somebody else might say, you guys are basically like selling tickets to my funeral. Like you couldn't be yeah. thirstier for my demise. It's packaged as well. That's just taking an honest look. That is part of the game. So yes, I agree with you that in general sports, even professional sports is covered in this idea of it's pure and it's, the backlot baseball diamond, and it's just a bunch of kids playing their hearts out is the idea. And you know what? Yeah. And it's not like we didn't know this to not be true with the doping scandals and all the other scandals that have happened in the world of sports. I'm not trying to say here to those people listening, like, what? You're only just getting this now. Like, of course, we know that there's scandals in sports. But there is something in the way that we talk about sports collectively as a culture, as a society, that even though we rationally, consciously know that it's not perfect, it we talk about it, the way that we talk about it is that we wish it to be perfect, that we wish it to be as uncomplicated as a score. Yeah, it's like a romance novel. It's like a, you know, a beach read. It's happy at the end that there's hard work and they pull through and they make it and everybody cheers. I've said before, maybe not on this podcast, that the reason I got into baseball at all is that I love the way people write about baseball. I Mm -hmm. love writers writing on baseball. I will read any baseball story you got because it is evocative and romantic. And there's always a bit of like, uh, I don't know, 1940s, like the war efforts and sweethearts at home and something about it is but it's all a fantasy that has nothing to do with 
actual baseball and the actual players from whatever town that have no idea what city they're now playing for. They're like, oh, okay. Uh, I don't know. Detroit, Toronto. Sure. You're right. It's a fantasy that people like to go on for a while the same way. Yeah. The same way they like to go on fantasies of, of, uh, yeah. Romance novels or, or, you know, uh, date movies or whatever. It's the happily ever after. It's the fade out. And I think that that's what I'm trying to get at is that this docu-series inadvertently, unintentionally exposed itself to be um, as unwilling to interrogate the fantasy as someone might be as unwilling to interrogate the mixed messaging in a rom-com. Yeah, I agree with that. That it set itself up as being like, look, we're going to look really hard at this. But in fact... Not so much. That's right. Here's something else I wanted to talk about, though, because, of course, it is nonetheless, even though all those feelings about what the doc did or didn't do are true, it's still a joy to watch people at the top of their game doing their game, right? It's still exciting to watch how utterly people can work when there are when every other problem is removed. Does that make sense? It, yeah, I'm going to keep running with your rom-com analogy. It's intoxicating watching people fall in love. Yeah. And it is intoxicating watching people be very, very good at their jobs. Absolutely. It's the dream. That's the lure. Yes. Now, yeah. uh, you know, they're good at their jobs because they don't have to do anything but those jobs. Everything is done for them. They are fed and watered right. and taken care of. There are, you know, there's medics, there's money, there's, they're literally driven to their practices and games uh, yeah. uh, unless they're Dennis Rodman, that whole kind of thing. Right. But just like in a rom-com, we don't have to see them like at their jobs unless their jobs are part of the story. We don't have to worry about them going to doctor's appointments. No. You know what I mean? They can stay out as late as possible without worrying about the report they have to do in the morning. Exactly. Exactly. But the other thing about it that really stuck with me is going back to your earlier point about Michael Jordan's leadership. um, You know, there is a certain world in which you can justify it, right? He says a hundred times, I wanted to win by any means possible. Right. Uh And you're like, yeah, I get that to a certain extent when winning is the only thing. If we have to complete the, you know, the sports warm, feel good feeling at the end, then yes, you have to win by any means possible. But I couldn't help thinking about how we will never or we haven't seen a woman in this same situation. We have not seen a woman say on camera, well, I'm, it doesn't matter. I have to do this or else Mm -hmm. nothing without coming down on that woman in the course Mm -hmm. of the storytelling. Mm -hmm. Like Anna Wintour comes to mind, right? Anna Wintour is exacting, is uh, definitive for many, many years at Vogue. Uh, You know, she- Allegedly cruel to people. Well, but that's what I'm saying. She was allegedly cruel to people. Um, but that is something that we hear. We hear about nuclear winter, 
without the burnished vaunting of, oh, well, it's all in the course of getting to the win of the September issue. There's much right. more of an insidious, uh, this is ugly, planted beneath it, right? Um, mm -hmm. We rarely see women in, in this kind of a scenario get to be this way without whatever it is we're watching kind of slapping them on the, slapping them on the wrist for it or or without that same documentary you know going home with them and being like oh so yeah I live alone it's easier I get up at 6 a.m and I go home at at midnight yeah. or whatnot you know even in cheer even when we mm -hmm. saw Monica Aldana who did have a family and who did have other things to in her life there's always the specter of, oh, but she might be mean to them. She might be cruel. She might be inconsiderate of their feelings or of their bodies yeah. or both. And I yeah. wonder whether it is because all this footage is 20 plus years old mm -hmm. or because we just don't portray women as, you know, singular uh genius tacticians who who get to be this person in service of the goal yeah or both all of it i mean on the very 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 top level it's still obvious like there's no equality so we've covered that and that can just be the umbrella for everything yes yes that goes as a as a <laughs> yeah. fucking caveat before we open our mouths yes yeah. but number two duanna goes back to Especially, I mean, I love your example about Anna Wintour and Michael Jordan because one thing is fashion. It's light. It's just clothes. It's fashion. And on the other end, this is sports. Remember, yeah, he was a dick, but sports. She's a bitch and fashion. Yeah, yeah. Women, what women like. Clothes, frivolous, light, L-I-T, but sports. I, and I I see it, like I understand why, but mm -hmm. it's but if you add it up, if you put this in somebody's textbook as you know head of uh, one industry enterprise A, and these are all the you know financials yep. and all the like fandoms and whatnot, and head of industry B, and this is how many people buy this issue and so forth. I bet they have yep. some comparable elements to them. It's not apples of to course. apples, but, you know, tickets versus I don't know. magazine I think sales. You're, but you're being entirely generous. I think it is apples to apples. Both of them are leaders. One of them is a leader um, who has been called cold and exacting and mean. The other is a leader who has been cold, called cold, exacting and mean. And they're both successful. One is lionized for it. And the other... Uh, whatever is a punchline. Come on, is a punchline. That's like right. Anna Wintour. Right. No matter how much she's achieved, you can end a joke with Anna Wintour, and everybody knows what yeah. you. Yeah. And the difference here is gender and also um, ecosystem, sport and fashion. But even in the sports, even in the sports realm, we have someone, for example, like Serena Williams, who. If we're talking about doing whatever is possible yeah. to win, yeah. um, is and she has, she's lost her temper. She's mm -hmm. shouted at people. She's also been very kind to people. She 
actually doesn't have the reputation Michael Jordan has in how cruel he can be to his own teammates. In fact, on the tour, Serena Williams has a great reputation of being friendly with other players, supportive of young players coming up on the tour. Um, and yet, as we all know, always crucified for the times where she might lose her temper, where, you know, here's Michael Jordan, not just losing his temper, but actually going out of his way to humiliate people constantly. Because it's part of the game Hero. or because it serves something. Yeah, exactly. And then just to extend the metaphor, um, you know, when we talk about somebody who is at the top of their game or like you can keep going, right? You can be Taylor Swift, who is at the top of an industry, certainly, who is certainly employing as many people and making as much of an industry go as Michael Jordan does. But Taylor Swift's whole documentary was about, I have to be a good little girl. I can't make any noise. Um, you know, Beyonce has dealt with it slightly differently, uh, but we, she's not celebrated for being, she's celebrated for being a performer and a singer, but not the tactician. You know, Michael Jordan is a player, but he's also uh, low-key the coach of the Bulls, right? Like, he sets the tone for everybody. So he is, in some ways, executing what they can do. Yes? With my apologies to mm -hmm. Phil Jackson, you get where I'm going here. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we don't see women that way. We don't see Anna Wintour as the architect of uh, style and culture for an entire generation or Beyonce as the architect of what will be the musical movements of the, of the late aughts, for example. It's just, well, she's a singer. She's a dancer. She does good shows. Not she's crafting entire sort of swaths of entertainment culture three to five years right. out. But even on like a granular level, she shows up at practice first and she's the last to leave practice. Yeah. Right. And they talk about those details about MJ with uh, like they're breathless when they say these things. Yeah. Well, and he's the first one. If I showed up at six o'clock and he'd already been there for an hour and he was shooting free throws for like, I don't know, he already nailed 45 free throws, whatever. Yeah. And you can hear it again if you uh, if you read about Tina Fey. There is similar sort of language around that, like it's the hardest working because you know that whoever whoever we celebrate next, if they're not the first one in the last one out, you're sure as hell not going to hear about it. I mean, Occam's Razor says that's part of their success is working harder and longer and so forth. But also, you're right. It's something people love to say. If that turns out not to be true in somebody's case, you're just not going to hear about it. If if Phoebe Waller-Bridge is always running late and she turns in her drafts late and there are typos, nobody's going to talk about that because it doesn't fit the, the hero narrative. Yeah, I really love that we ended up, you ended up bringing this around to Anna Wintour. It, it was the example I could think of because that's how it goes most of the time. When a woman is super powerful, we wind up slapping them on the wrist and yelling at them, right? Remember the thing about the away suitcase company and how yeah. cruel that one boss was? And you sort of go, okay, well, maybe that kind of 
uh, abuse and yelling is what it takes to win. But then maybe we need to start having a different perspective on winning and what it means. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So a few weeks ago, we uh, talked about John Krasinski's Some Good News in a conversation about how Lockdown has gotten people to be creative in ways they didn't expect. John Krasinski was supposed to be uh, promoting and perhaps enjoying the success of The Quiet Place 2. Instead, he became one of the winners, if we can even call it that, of like online entertainment with his show, Some Good News. And now we've heard that there was a bidding war over Some Good News to bring it to broadcast. So conventional television. Ish. Yeah. Go on. Viacom CBS won the bidding war. They're going to do some good news in this new format. But John Krasinski will not be fronting it. He'll be producing. He'll be the executive producer. I mean, it's his show. But yeah, it's going to go to air without him as the face. Well, and in fact, I believe it's going to be on CBS All Access. So uh, in addition to not being hosted by John Krasinski, it's actually also not free anymore. Uh, CBS All Access is a subscription service. So it's now going to be available to the people who are already uh, participating in that service, which is not different than if it were picked up by Netflix or by... Apple yeah. TV plus, but, uh, but it's, it's something that people have definitely taken issue with. So was this inevitable? They say that, uh, you know, the calls started happening after the first episode, which is the, the first episode was Steve Carell, right? That's right. Um, and I guess, uh, supposedly he was hesitant at first, but well, clearly not anymore. Um, what do you think? Good move? I mean, for him, sure. Yeah, sure. Um, I think it's a fine move. And here's why. Uh, it, you know, every day we're making new decisions on, like, COVID life, you know. And at some point, by the time this airs, it may be different again. But people are now talking about when we go back to work next year, as opposed to when we go back to work this summer or whatever, things are changing all the time. So I preface this with saying that uh, he may have made his decision based on what three or four weeks ago, John Krasinski knew to be true. But here's the reality. He can't do that show forever. It, nope. He can't call in favors from his celebrity friends once he is 
writing a new script that's due for wherever he's going to do a script or once he's back doing 16 hour days on Jack Ryan or so forth. So the show was always going to end at some point and having it taken out of his hands. Oh, CBS is going to make it rather than me is a relatively scot-free way to stop doing it or to have it go on and make people happy because it definitely made people happy without people grumbling about, come on, John Krasinski, like suck it up and do it for the people. Uh, You know, it's that double-edged sword thing where you do something and people like it and then they get mad when you don't do it the right way or uh, when you don't do it for free anymore or so forth. So uh, is it a good decision? Uh, Yeah, for him, I think it was the I don't want to say the easiest way out, but maybe the cleanest way out. And I don't know that this was the first time things like this have happened. Like um, when this happened, and I know like, you know, over the last couple of months, bringing up this person's name elicits a reaction these days. But, you know, Ellen. Uh Uh-huh. There you go. There's your reaction. (laughs) Ellen has had all kinds of bits on her show, on her talk show that have been spun off into like proper half hour comedies or variety shows, right? Yeah. She has broken people, certainly, right? Uh, Created stars out of people and so forth. And yes, you're right. Out of bits as well. Yes. I mean, listen, I think that there are like at least two or three shows that are bit, like were started off as bits and then they became a thing. Similarly, uh, Jimmy Fallon's Lip Sync Battle. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Was a bit on The Tonight Show and then now has become a proper show where, yes, he's still behind the scenes, but he's not lip sync battling anybody else. It's other celebrities battling each other. And that is its own entity. And it's not free in the sense of you have to have the channel that airs. Right. See also the network that airs. Karaoke. Yeah. yeah. There you go. So I wouldn't say that this is the first time this has happened. There's a template for it. The reaction, though, yes, a little bit different. And I guess it's because everybody is very sensitive right now. There's a heightened sensitivity to all that, to what's happening. And I guess, too, the spirit behind this show, Some Good News, was, oh, shit, we're in the middle of a global health crisis. All the news is terrible. Let me give you some good news. Um, And so I think that's what people are also reacting to. At the end of the day, though, would any one of us turn down the opportunity? No, I don't think so. Um, and I think the spirit, the purest spirit of it maintains, right? Uh, oh, I want to give people some good news. And now there will be many more people and more resources devoted to giving people some good news. It's like, uh, and I know for sure that you've never watched a frame of this, but do you remember Extreme Makeover Home Edition? No. Do you know what it was? This was sort of every week, uh, crazy Ty Pennington, who, if I remember, actually came from another show. I think he was a an also player on Trading Spaces, which was the beginning of uh, home reality shows. So Extreme Makeover Home Edition, uh, 
crazy tie and a group of people go to a family who have uh, done a lot for the community, but uh, are experiencing troubles specifically regarding their house. They don't have any money for their house. The whole community pitches in, fixes up the house, and everybody cheers at the end. Uh, and there's also a lot of like volcano-themed bedrooms for the children and so forth. It is engineered to be heartwarming. It's also very clearly a production, you know, like whatever was the original rawer bones of it are gone in exchange for, well, if we get more money, if we get more sponsors, if we get more whatever, we can reach more people. That's the one idea, right? So yeah, I can see uh, Krasinski being like, well, the ends justify the means here, certainly. But I think there's another reason that people are so upset. And I wonder if you uh, agree with me on this one. This may be where we start to fight. Are you ready? Go for it. The reason I think that people are having such a reaction to this is because, frankly, they got to see John Krasinski again in the most up-close and personal way they had since The Office. And Mm -hmm. I think that, uh, you know, more than most characters, people think that John Krasinski is like Jim from The Office, who was everybody's perfect boyfriend, right? He's kind of funny, he's sarcastic, but he's not cruel. And I think that the bigger sort of element there, although maybe nobody else has articulated it, is John Krasinski is not that exciting an actor. He's a very exciting celebrity. He's fun to be around when he's being him. If he's doing an interview with a late night host, it's going to be great. He's great right? Yep. He's not that great an actor. The The thing is, the reason that some good news, I think, hits such a nerve is that he was a great and natural late night host or, you know, news host. And this in a time when we see people all the time try and fail to be late night hosts, right? So he was so yeah. effortlessly good at it that I think the idea that he would give up what he's good at for the thing that is like, eh, fine is where people are really getting grumpy. I agree with you. I think that there is a way that for people, a, a comfort level there. It was comfortable to see John Krasinski back in that role because since the end of the office, he's disappeared and he's gone to be John Krasinski director, John Krasinski action star. Yeah, Jack um, Ryan. Like there's no that's room right. in Jack Ryan for him to do his little half smirk that he does and that's like right. kind of eye the camera. Um mm-hmm. there's no room for him to do cute little asides where you're like does he like yeah. me? Cuz I've never met him and he's through my computer <laughs> screen, but I think he might like me. Yeah, and it's a it was a return to something familiar and comfortable. That is the John Krasinski we want him to be or out there people want him to be. And why is John Krasinski wanting to be more? Why is John Krasinski wanting to be a director and a, an action movie star and this super producer? I mean, I I agree with you. I think that definitely there is that kind of ownership yeah, and and I would say in addition to comfortable and familiar, he's good at it. Like he's good at being disarming. He's good at 
making people feel seen and spoken to. I think it's notable that all the real people in his show are able to actually put sentences together. A lot of times when this happens, including on Ellen or other shows, people are so overwhelmed and stunned by the star factor that they're just like, ah, uh, uh, but it clearly people feel comfortable enough to kind of banter and shoot the shit with him. I think he has a particular talent in this arena and that's why people responded so well. And I don't know if anybody's ever responded to him that well when he's not being himself. You know, what is interesting about this deal though, is that about 14 months ago, um, when they were on the cover of the Hollywood reporter together and uh, I mean, John Krasinski and Emily Blunt, we dedicated a portion of our show that week to the fact that they were power coupling, right? Yeah. That there was a very clear throwdown, um, well, clear to us anyway, that they were behind the scenes becoming this power couple. And this is a very significant move in that direction. It absolutely is in the ter- in terms of, here, I can set up a show for you and you go make it. Um, but I think the key is uh, that the more... Krasinski is Krasinski in his own stuff, the better it's going to do. Like the comparable kind of element here, it seems, is Kristen Bell and Dax Shepard, right? That's another couple who are uh, super famous. Well, I mean, I would say Kristen Bell and Emily Blunt work about the same amount. Um, They work on different stuff. They're, you know, they fill different roles, but they're equally as in demand, right? And Mm -hmm. Zach Shepard came up through this or that property. You know him from, you know, from Jackass or from uh, Parenthood or whatnot. But he really has come into his own doing Armchair Expert where he's utterly better at being himself than he is at trying to go be somebody else. And uh, he's paraphrased that a million times. I don't feel like I'm being critical. So I do think there's something interesting to that there, that that there's also a part where it's like, well, John Krasinski may not care. He may not care that much about being adored or being on camera to to want to keep it going. Because, yeah, of course, there's a world in which he could have become a late night host. He could have uh, taken the first season of some good news to camera himself, but he he doesn't clearly doesn't need or want that. Okay, but here's here's something that I want to finish a point because it just occurred to me um, that what's unseen, to your point, what we've been talking about is that people like him. He's likable. He is good at this. Right. He's also good at creating shows and selling them. It just hasn't been as seen. Lip Sync Battle is his. It belongs to him. He created it with Stephen Merchant. I just remembered he was the one that pitched it to Jimmy Fallon. He owns Lip Sync Battle. John Krasinski was playing it at home with his friends, decided it would be great to put it on The Tonight Show. That spun off. That is his show. It's a reality show. So when we're talking about templates, me bringing up Lip Sync Battle and Ellen shit, this is a template that he's already created for himself. He's already been doing this. So I guess to your point about people wanting him to keep doing what he's good at, hey, he's good at this. Right. And I think it 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 almost underscores the same point, right? 
you're right. He's good at coming up with formats that people will latch onto and giving them to people who can make them happen. Um, and I think uh, he's good at finding the things that he himself enjoys uh, mm -hmm. that are like quintessential John Krasinski and sending those out into the world, right? Like that's a skill yeah. too. It's not, uh, you know, it's, it's not that a quiet place has turned into a million different spinoffs. It's the stuff that he does <laughs> when he's at home with his friends that actually, uh, has a worldwide appeal. So it sort of underscores the same thing. You're right mm -hmm. that he's good at this. He's good at coming up with this stuff. And I would say he's good at it because he's doing what he would enjoy. He's doing his own thing. And I will say one more note, I think, to the people who are mad. I don't agree. I, don't, I think it's clear that, do you agree? Uh, no, I don't think there's anything to be mad at. Like, uh, except it's totally acceptable to be mad at this point in our fucking worldwide development. Like, of course, everything's terrible. And I understand in general being cranky. Um, but yeah. I know I don't think he's made any sort of tactical error or any sort of right. sellout move. There are, you know, of course, there were headlines last week. Fans are upset. Here's one. Fans are upset at John Krasinski over his news. Blah, 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 blah. Right? Right. People are calling him a sellout, this and that and the other. Uh, Twitter reacts swiftly. So he made eight YouTube videos comprised largely of unpaid contributions from fans, sold the brand to a major conglomerate, and isn't even going to make it anymore. Just cashed out. Does this rub anyone else the wrong way? Blah, blah, blah. You're profiting off of some good news. I bought you hook, line, and sinker. Believe you were just trying to bring goodness to light. Going from YouTube free to a pay service. So disappointed. Sell out. I mean, that's one side of the story. The other side of the story is that now jobs are going to be created because of some good news. That's right. And I will tell you right now, we, this podcast is about the entertainment industry and the work of the entertainment industry. And very, there are so many people in the entertainment industry out of work. We need to create work for these people. The industry is being decimated. And, you know, this creates space for him to come up with yet another thing that you love. Evidently, uh, he can do it. Uh, he can create lip sync battle. He can create some good news. He'll do it again. He'll win you back some way, somehow. So, yeah, it does seem, that reaction seems off base to me. I completely disagree with it. Um, I think it seems off base at best and naive um, about what the industry is and who these people are and who gets to participate. And even on a, on a much more sort of uh, lo-fi note, we know how this shit goes. And say he kept going. By episode 17, somebody would be like, some good news isn't as good as it used to be. His guest isn't as famous as his other guests were. <laughs> Whatever the hell it would be. Like, there's, there's no pleasing everybody. Yeah, and at the end of the day, he's a content creator, but now he gets to be a job creator. And I don't know. I don't know that I'm the, I have the energy to be mad at that today. Thank you for listening and supporting Show Your Work. Um, please continue to subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave comments and reviews. We so appreciate it. 
Thanks for noticing that we took a break and uh, we're delighted to be back. Keep sending us your emails and notes and we can't wait to read more of them. See you next time. Bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.